You're listening to Sports Connections with David Smale, the show that brings you a fun and intimate look into connections throughout sports. Now here's your host, David Smale. To conclude our week of focusing on fathers leading up to Father's Day, it's my honor to welcome my friend Vahe Gregorian to Sports Connections. Vahe is a sports columnist with the Kansas City Star. Vahe lost his father recently. I never knew Vartan Gregorian, but reading many of the tributes to this fine man, I wish I did. Vartan was a renowned academician who worked in lofty positions at two different Ivy League schools, including serving as dean, provost, and even a university president. He ran the New York Public, New York Public Library and was the head of the Carnegie Corporation, a grant-making institution founded more than a century ago by Andrew Carnegie. Born in Northwest Iran 87 years ago, he immigrated to the U.S. in 1956, spoke multiple languages fluently. He accomplished so much, but his love of family superseded all the other accomplishments. He and his wife raised three sons, all of whom have been successful in their own right. Vahe chose to perfect the craft of sports writer, and we're all better for that. You know, a rising tide raises all ships. We're going to talk to Vahe about his own career and about the immense respect and love he has for his dad. So Vahe, welcome to Sports Connections. It's great to be with you, David. And, and I really do. When you approached me about this, I felt greatly honored. You wanted to talk about this topic. So I, I, uh, I tip my cap. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're willing to do it. I know it's, it's still a, a fresh subject, uh, losing your dad. And I know that's hard. I lost my dad 16 years ago and I still think of him often. I drive by a golf course and see a driving range and I start to pick up my cell phone. I'm going to call my dad. Oh, I can't, you know, so uh, I know that's still fresh and I appreciate you being willing uh, to do this. So I'd like to start with your career. When and how did you decide to become a sports writer? Well, you know, it's funny. It, it, it had a little bit of a, uh, uh, I don't know if halting uh, pace is the way to put it, but I, I, I really struggled to figure out what I wanted to do after I got out of college. I, I, I was an English major in college and I just, had the feeling sports was going to be part of it. My first job was working for Pop Warner Youth Football, and it looked like a pretty great job. Their, their headquarters was in Philadelphia, um, where I grew up and where I went to college. And I got there, and it just, it just didn't really take. It was uh, a different um, format and organization than I understood it to be. And I ended up quitting without having another job, which is really not what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and then my roommate at the time also uh, was <laughs> in flux. He, he got laid off like two days after I quit. So neither of us had a job for a couple months. And, it, you know, every day we're getting up looking at the want ads. That's what you did back in the day. Right. And, you know, but not really asking yourself the serious enough question. Right. I'm just looking at, oh, well, what do I do for a job instead of really thinking about what do I want to do? And I think I bring up that time because I think that's when I just started realizing I keep talking about writing and I never do it. Um, and a family friend, I, I ended up getting a job working as a marketing rep at a grocery warehouse in South Philly. And long story short, not short enough, but long story short, um, a family friend suggested I apply to University of Missouri for, for grad school. And I'm like, okay, but that's out in Missouri. <laughs> um, so I applied to Missouri, uh, and, you know, also applied to Columbia university cause I was more of a Northeast guy at that point. And, uh, I, I didn't get in Columbia and I remember I had to go take a test for Columbia and I, I was carrying my typewriter with me and I, 
walked into the house to take the test of, of an alum. And I, uh, I split my pants, uh, getting my typewriter. And I remember thinking that was an omen. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I didn't get in Columbia and I got in Missouri and it was probably the, certainly professionally the best thing that ever happened to me because, um, I probably, if I had gone to Columbia, I would have sort of stayed in the same place. And I don't think I would have expanded my world the way I did coming out to Missouri. And that just kind of put one thing in front of another after that. So it's maybe a longer answer than uh, you wanted, but we are on a podcast. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and and because I run the podcast, nobody's going to be tapping me on the shoulder saying this guy's talking too long. So we can go as long as, as you're comfortable with it. Now, you went to Penn, an Ivy League school. And I don't want to downgrade your profession because it's also my profession. But what other options did you have as an Ivy League graduate? Well, it, it's interesting. I, I, I was in school and probably by the time I got to college, when I when I realized I wasn't going to make it in the NFL, when I couldn't even start at Penn, um, I started thinking, well, what is it that I realistically want to do? And um, I, I really I really thought I was going to teach and coach. Okay. I thought I was going to teach high school English and, and coach high school football. And I had a couple opportunities to do that coming out of college and I couldn't pull the trigger. I don't know why. Um, one was at a prep school in Connecticut. And I think going back to something I said before, David, it, I, I think I was in a little bit of a rut with just wanting to sort of stay in the area, thinking more about day to day instead of the big picture and the real world and what I wanted my life to be. I, I it's a little immature, I think. Um, and I, you know, it's funny, I, I'm, I'm, I'm no spring chicken now at 60, but I sometimes wonder if, you know, in my dotage, I'll, I'll still uh, maybe take a run at, at coaching and teaching later. <laughs> we'll see. Well, you could, you could have me. Yeah. You could, you could coach the uh, Kansas City star softball team. <laughs> I, I, I played the defunct team. I, They'll have me. Yeah, I, I played on that back in the early 80s when I was there. So um, now you talk, talk about Missouri, obviously one of the best J schools in the country. Um, how did that impact your career? Because obviously it's there's a difference between going to journalism school and becoming a journalist. How did that how did that impact you? Tremendous impact. Um and, and starting with the very point you just made, you know, when I went, I just had this vague notion of writing. I mean, I don't even think I said, I want to go there and start working for a newspaper. I think I just felt sort of led to go there and see what happens. And there's became something uh, very appealing in, in the discipline of journalistic writing. I felt like I was learning all the time. Then also, the extra tier was it tapped into a, a level of curiosity I had, I think, about people and stories and ways of the world that I, I, I don't think I really understood until I got there. I, I didn't I didn't really realize what a portal it was to getting to do those things. Yeah. And, I, you know, initially when I got there, when it was time to go on a beat at the student paper, the Missourian. I was trying to get away from sports. I thought a little bit that um, I'd gotten a little in, in a, you know, sort of stereotypical place where I was just going to always be some kind of jock and not really thinking bigger. But then I realized that you could, you could 
do so many things through sports, with sports, because it's such a vehicle, as you know, through all the work you've done and all the experiences you've had, it, it, I wouldn't doubt that that's the very thing that drives you. I, I think we always have a chance to tell broader stories in sports. And I, I, I understood that a little bit from reading the people I read growing up and at, at the Philadelphia Inquirer and places like that. But, but once you're staring it in the face, it, it becomes more of, of a direct question. Like what, what is it about this that's appealing? It's not really just the games. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, Vahe. I, I joke that I could count to 720 when I started kindergarten because that's how many cards were in a baseball card set. 721, it was irrelevant. I didn't need to know how to count to that. I could count to 720 because I had to put them put them in order. And I've joked with Ryan Lefevre that his dad taught me how to how to read. And first time I met him, well, early the first year that I met him in 1999. I said, hey, next time you see your dad, tell him thanks. And he said, okay, for what? And I said, he taught me how to read. And he said, he didn't teach me how to read. My mom did. He was, <laughs> you know, he was always on the road and, and said, how did he teach you how to read? And I said, well, I was trying to read everything phonetically and I kept getting stuck on Lefebvre. And he goes, tell me about it. I was in third grade before I could spell it and say it right. And, and so we chatted for a couple more minutes. And about two weeks later, I was at the game and he came over. He says, dad says, you're welcome. <laughs> but my world has revolved around sports and I like to write. You know, when my wife was going through cancer, I wrote a blog and it was therapeutic for me, you know, to to be able to express what I was thinking by writing. So the fact that so much of my life's around sports, I'm, I ought to be a sports writer. And that's kind of how I came into it. I think that's what you're saying. Sports is it crosses so many boundaries. And if those are boundaries that, that you want to cross, sports writing is a good way to do that. Absolutely. And, and I, I think, um, I don't know if I can add to that really in any, any meaningful way, but, but I do feel like over the years, the last 32 years or so being in this, there was, there's a certain, um, you know, with all the changes happening around us, all the trees falling around us, you know, at all times, things just feeling so, so strange in terms of where we first started in this journey. Um, a lot of the essence of it still remains the same. The, the, the stuff that makes me, that drives me to want to keep doing this does remain the same. Every day is a new adventure and every day is a new opportunity to try to delve into something you hope is is broader and deeper than just the surface thing you're working on. But yeah. sometimes even the surface thing you're working on is very compelling. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to ask you about um, your, your all-time, we all have all-time favorite athletes to interview and, and write about. I'm obviously wearing my Hank Aaron Indianapolis Clowns <laughs> jersey today. Uh, my all-time favorite athlete, and I did have a chance to interview him back in, in uh, mid-80s, I guess. Um, who is your all-time favorite athlete to interview? You know, I, I thought about this um, because you were kind enough to, to let me know ahead of time that I should think about that. And it's a very, it is a very hard question to answer. It, and I'll, I'll take it from a little bit of the standpoint you started with. And I bet you've had this experience. So when you're a kid, your favorite athlete is your favorite athlete for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And for me being in, in Austin, Texas for a little while, and then on to Philadelphia, it's sort of the start of my conscious life. 
Um, it was people like, not an athlete, but Daryl Royal, the great Texas football coach and players of that team. And then athletes like Mike Schmidt and Bobby Clark. And the reason I bring all three of those up and even Hank Aaron, as it turns out, I bring all of them up because 20 years later, I had occasion for one reason or another to interview all of them. And I don't know if this happened to you. I am not particularly starstruck. I feel like it, in the flow of the job, I don't, I just don't feel right. like that. Yeah. But when it's somebody that was your, your idol as a kid, that sets you, sets you <laughs> off track. Yeah. I mean, it just does. So um, some of my proudest moments are not just that I got to interview them, but that I kind of held it together. <laughs> yeah. Instead of being Chris Farley and at a Saturday Night Live skit with uh, Paul McCartney or somebody. Yeah. Um, but but you know the, the the real truth of it is it's it's there are almost infinite, certainly dozens uh, in my mind of people that you can't believe uh, the the tier of conversation you got to with them, um, and. That's uh, sometimes people that are well known, but other times it's not really necessarily anybody well known. It's it's right. just people you've gotten to come across through the years, and so it's hard not to just have kind of little recency bias about that and think about people like Danny Duffy uh, that you know you've you've had a chance to really um, go deep with and that show up as the same person all the time. I value that a lot. Um, it. it so I'm, I'm giving you a long answer without really giving you an answer. I just feel like it is always the sense of connection, though, that that is most compelling, whether it's, you know, we had an archer from Wellington, Missouri, that was in the Olympics in, in 2016. And I tell people this all the time. One of the one of the reasons you want to go to the Olympics as a as a anybody in the media isn't to see Michael Phelps win his eighth gold medal necessarily. It's to sit in the stands with the mother of a local Olympian while he wins a silver medal. Yeah. Because you can, you get to know them and you, you, you in a certain way, share in the experience and can bring it back to Kansas city um, or wherever the audience is along those lines. Excuse me, David, I'm, I'm digressing a little but but it's, there is a point. Um, Whenever I think about the most important thing we can do in our jobs in a lot of ways, right? We can, we can hope to make people think. We can hope to point out uh, things that are right or wrong. And, and you might be able to, uh, you know, at least leave somebody with, with uh, inclination to, to reexamine themselves, all these sorts of things. But really, being true to your audience, being able to take your audience where it doesn't get to go, that's kind of a, a big driver. And going to the Dominican for Giordano Ventura's funeral, um, I, I don't think I'll ever have another experience like that where there really was only a, a scattering of media there and you felt like all of Kansas City was tuned in. Yeah. Even, even on Twitter. And I bring that up in this context, that Dayton Moore sets the tone for that with the Royals, as you know. And Dayton, I spoke with him that day and asked him, you know, what, how come you let me basically embed with you in this most intimate, painful of times? 
And he said, Kansas City needs to know this story. Kansas City needed to be here today. Yeah. And so I think of that as part of the job. But the reason I, the long, long winded approach to this is that I don't know that, that I know a finer person than Dayton Moore at all. And I, I certainly don't know that I uh, can, can tell you anyone that I um, enjoy speaking with more about more things than, than Dayton Moore. And yeah. So I, I just felt I'd be remiss if I didn't mention him in this. And I'm being remiss in not mentioning 25 other people, but the, those, those all stand out to me. Yeah, for sure. And, and going back to something you said earlier, uh, our mutual friend, friend, Bob Kendrick, he and I share our all-time favorite athlete, not just baseball player, in Hank Aaron. And he said in the 10 years that he's given tours uh, as president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, the one time... <laughs> he was flustered was when he gave a tour to Hank Aaron who obviously played in the Negro leagues, but showing that museum, he said, I don't know if I made any sense at all, but here I was with, with Hank Aaron, you know, he practically lost it even telling me uh, about that, uh, about that time. And I understand what you're saying. You know, there's no way we could do our job if we got starstruck because we're around stars all the time, but being able to tell the behind the scenes story and you and I've talked about, some of these stories, the, the, the story that you did, and it wasn't, I don't think it was the, the funeral. Didn't you go back with Maria Torres uh, yeah. like six months later or something? And that, that story that you guys did is one of the, one of my all time favorite sports stories, period, because you, you enabled those of us who didn't go to the Dominican Republic to understand what was going on. And, and that's one of the reasons I like reading your stuff so much. Yeah, well, thank you. And, and yeah, we did. And it was only really a few weeks later. Okay. And, um, but I'll tell you what, what, one thing, first, let me quick say something about Bob Kendrick, Sam Melliger, and I talk about this all the time. I don't know, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody better suited to, and in his case, that's literally in the suits he wears, <laughs> right? <laughs> better suited to his job, who does more for his cause than Bob Kendrick, who yeah. um, I, you know, I'll always remember him telling about uh, uh, that Hank Aaron story too, and, and how he ended up, I think, sharing some gates with him and thinking to himself, I cannot believe I'm sitting here with Hank Aaron. And, and I love Bob's <laughs> story about running the bases back home in Crawfordville uh, as Hank Aaron's running the bases. Yeah, um, He is a special, special man. And in some ways I feel like Bob Kendrick helped me get through the pandemic because I ended up seeing him uh, a fair amount of times, uh, you know, at distance with masks on during the pandemic, because it was a, a, a pivot point for the museum in so many ways, for right. all the things going on. But um, just quick back to the uh, other thing with Giordano, it, it's a long story, but uh, the germ of the story is something that is part of why we as journalists, I think, um, need to go there, need to be there for things. Part of the reason that follow-up story came about was a chance uh, run-in with somebody in Giordano's camp at the airport while we were leaving from the funeral. Just somebody I bumped into, hadn't met before, and uh, our, our, our wonderful photographer, John Sleezer, and I were there and, and ended up leading to a chat. It was like, huh, that's different than we understood this. And there's a lot more to this story. So I, there's no other point there 
other than two things. One, random chance is part of it. And two, it's the Woody Allen thing about this job. 90% of life is just showing up. So, you know, we just kind of keep showing up. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Capable of that. (laughs) You know, Vahe, I could talk to you about stories you've written and things that we've shared in common uh, a lot, but I want to get to, I want to get to your dad. And the first thing I want to ask you, and I've read some stuff about his, the way he has, has treated uh, um, all of you, you know, you and your brothers. How did your father react when you told him you were going to be a sports writer? Well, that it's, it's very interesting question because it, in a way it was a bit of an uphill climb with him on this. You know, bear in mind, he's first generation immigrant. And, you know, growing up, I liked comic books and girls and rock music and football. And he, it, we, we struggled at times in my adolescence because of those things, right? I mean, I, I but, but he never, along with my mom, by the way, who was an equally vital force. Um, I don't think in any way either of them ever told us what they thought we ought to be. And I think at every turn, they wanted us to figure out for ourselves who we were. But, you know, as my dad would say, be the, be the, the best garbage man you can be then if, or whatever it is. And I don't, it, that's not a demeaning point. It's right. find what it is, yeah. whatever it is. So those are kind of incompatible forces in a way, right? On one hand, he, he wasn't delighted with some of the things that I took great interest in. On the other hand, he still wanted me to find myself. And over time, he tried to meet us where we lived, I think was a, a way I put it to my brothers and in, in, in the eulogy to him. Um, but it, 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 it was over time. And, uh, but that's a vital part of the, of the journey with your parent too. Yeah. And when when it was determined I was going to journalism school, when I was going to go to grad school, um, that, you know, he thought of that as I'm becoming a journalist. Right. Probably not as much as I'm becoming a sports writer. But that that also that never seemed to be a, a point of trivia to him because he understood he understood journalism, a friend of journalism and also understood the human drama, the human condition, and, and in, in what I would try to seek out to write about, he, he got what that meant and, and could mean in, in, in a way that resonated with him. Um, one other quick aside, David, too, I just want to say this. So when, so he was at Penn when I went to Penn. He was provost at Penn when I went to Penn. And that was an interesting time um, because I didn't realize he was, that was when I first kind of understood he was, he was kind of a big deal. And because, you know, he's around the, the name, people recognizing my name. I'm like, oh, how do you know? Well, it's kind of obvious. Yeah. <laughs> how do you know that's my dad? You know, it's, oh, I, I see. Um, but I was so proud to be, it, it, you know, again, one of those things where, where you, you want to become your own person, but I was so proud to be connected to him. And we, we reached sort of a level of closeness there that was, was new territory for us. I mean, we'd been growing into it as he came to understand me better. But going to campus 
and knowing I could stop in his office and he, he would stop a meeting to come out and see me. That was pretty cool. And I, I broke my ankle on the freshman football team that year. I broke it pretty badly and needed reconstructive surgery. And, you know, I'm living in a dorm. And so my dad was coming to the dorm to get my laundry to take home on the, on the media local train. And, you know, one day it broke open on the train. Oh no. (laughs) And, uh, I hope I I've never quite gotten the full story. I hope it was the clean laundry, not the dirty, Um, (laughs) but, but that was the sort of thing that, that was happening. And, and, um, it, it was great. It was a golden, golden time. And, and in part, that was why I was I was saddened when when things developed as they did, and he left Penn to go to the New York Public Library. But actually, that was the best thing that ever happened to him in some ways. Yeah, and you said something earlier in that uh, in the answer to that question that I will disagree with. You said it seems somewhat uh, I don't remember the word you used, but like dichotomous that that they would not tell you what to do, but then they would tell you to do your best. I think those fit exactly. Uh, they're, they're one of my favorite scripture verses. I don't know if the scripture is important to you, but Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, do it to the best of your ability. Do it for the Lord, not for men. And, and I was paraphrasing, but that's the gist of it. My parents said the same thing. You know, I didn't become a journalist until I was in the work world. That's not what I majored in. And, and they said, do, what, do whatever you do, street sweeper, journalist, teacher, whatever, do it to the best of your ability, and and you can bring honor to God. You can bring honor to the family by doing something with excellence, whatever it is. So I I think those things go together very well. Well, yeah, I do think you're right. Um, and and we were lucky to feel that way, right? Whatever I I thought about this often when I think about um, how fortunate I've been, how fortunate. Uh, our, our lives have been to have these circumstances. I mean, my parents always made us feel like in the end, it will be okay, right? Whatever, whatever strain or stress or worries you have, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a worrier, but I do have kind of an abiding uh, sense deep inside, like everything will work out. And I think that's what comes from a loving home and nurturing parents and, uh, I, you know, to be able to feel that um, way as a child, I, 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 I feel for those who didn't have that feeling. And I understand that that that, that is part of a struggle. Um, I just do. I just know it would be if I yeah. didn't have that inner inner sense. Yeah. Now, um, you, when he, he left Penn, he went to work. He he basically resurrected the New York Public Library. How did his love of books influence your decision and even your writing style? Because you have a very, um, I, I, was, I should have written this down ahead of time trying to describe your writing style, but it's an educated style. You're not, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ad lib here, which is not a good idea. You're not, <laughs> you're not writing as a jock. You're writing as a as an expert. You're writing as someone who understands what you're writing about and are going to tell the people who either don't know that person, don't know the story, don't know the behind the scenes story. You have a way of, of telling the story in a deeper way than a lot of journalists, I guess is the best way to say that. So did that come from your dad's love of books and did he pass that along to you? 
I think if if I had to really examine this point, which I now will, um, it it seems to me that that I I'm lucky to have a few different sort of tributaries to whatever it is I think I am, and either as a person or as as a writer, and. Part of it's absolutely my dad's emphasis on education. Part of it's my mother's love of language. Mm. My, my mother loved words. My mother was, was one of the smartest, funniest people I've ever known. She's the best letter writer I've ever known. Um, and so that, that right there is part of it. And then I do think it, it's interesting to get to have all this kind of, <laughs> for lack of better term, schooling but also having played sports. Yeah. Um, and the, I think I, I'm sure you would say this too. It, you're a little bit influenced by those you read and maybe as you are doing that, it sifts out something for you that, that becomes what you feel like is your voice um, or at least what the voice you would hope to have. So I think it's all of that. I, I'm not trying to diminish my father's influence in that way, because I think it's sort of, a foundational point, but it's, it's a little less direct than that, maybe. Okay. When, when your dad passed away and, and I, you know, I read the eulogy in the star and I read other, other stories about him. He did some amazing things and he did a lot of things that were well-known. What are you most proud of among those things that were well-known that, you know, that maybe it's the restoration or the building from, almost from rubble, the New York Public Library. What was the thing, the well-known thing that you were most proud of? Well, I do think we, we thought a lot about this, uh, my brothers and I, in the weeks since, and, and uh, it, it, it's clear to me that the library just stands out in a different way. It's not that it was necessarily more important or more significant, but it was such a, uh, the other institutions, at least as I see it, were ones that he could enliven and make better, but the library had to be saved. And, and he saved it. And he, he gave it new identity, whether it's, I think it's something like, I'm making this number up, but miles and miles of, of uh, stacks that weren't air conditioned before he could do that. And it was library only being open a few days a week. And Bryant Park was a, a den of uh, drug dealers and, and uh, infamy. And now Bryant Park for a couple of decades has been, many decades now, has been a, a thriving important part of New York City that's connected to the library. And the library is a, a proud repository once more and, and he, you know, resuscitated it basically, yeah. and, and certainly not alone. I I, I got to, right. I, I have a little hero worship going on here, but um, but you know, he he, every single thing he did was collaborative. So, right. but at least as an inspiring force and a figurehead, what was kind of funny for me? A couple of quick things about the library, David. So, I was just getting out of college uh, when he was there, and they started doing fundraising campaigns like a literary lion's dinner. So I'd get on the train from Philadelphia and I'd have to rent a tux. I'd be allowed to go to the cocktail hour. And my mom would come around and introduce me to people like James Baldwin or Tom Wolfe or uh, Jackie Onassis Kennedy or Arthur Miller. And I'd get to shake their hands and then they'd kick me out. 
um, and they'd have the real event. But that was kind of cool, right? I was, I, it's not like I could say I had any, any you know, real connection to any of those people, but to be in that yeah. atmosphere was kind of cool. Um, and yeah, the other thing, I, I think I've written about this somewhere, maybe on Facebook, but you know, while my dad was at the New York Public Library, they were filming Ghostbusters there, and he didn't he didn't even know about it, I don't think. But Mad Magazine comes out with its spoof of Ghostbusters, and, and he's in the second panel. It's, oh it's, it's, it's a caricature of him with, with Bill Murray. So my dad, being uh, ever resourceful as he was, he, he wrote the guys at Mad Magazine and uh, thanked them for, for highlighting him, but wondered whether they might um, be willing to donate to the library. And they, they said they'd be happy to send some back issues that they had to fill in. But as for the donation, we're a cheap outfit. Yeah. <laughs> but he loved telling that story. Oh, yeah, for sure. Who, who wouldn't like to be featured in Mad Magazine? Right? I mean, we're, I'm, I'm a couple of years older than you, but I mean, we grew up on Mad Magazine. So that was it was like, I, yeah, I, I got I got published in Sports Illustrated when I was in college. Ooh. Not as a sports writer. I wrote a letter to the editor. So but I still got published in Sports Illustrated. So Sports Illustrated and Mad Magazine, the two two pieces of journalism that she wanted to be <laughs> featured in. That, hey, that that's right. Hey, one other very quick thing, um, it, just to show you the kind of the range of this point. So when he was with Carnegie, um, we were incredibly privileged to be taken with them on a trip to South Africa. Hmm. Um, to see what some of their work was leading to. And, and we ended up in a town called Peter Maritzburg near Durban by the Indian Ocean. And they had dedicated a children's library to this town. And the entire town shut down and was, you know, native garb, dancers, everything. And that was, that was sort of out of body. It was very exciting to see that what it meant and then we went to the newly opened children's library. It was a pretty elaborate place. And the librarian had to be a guy in his 60s or 70s, was literally running from room to room in front of us to show us what they had now. And I I just I'll never forget that because it just showed me the, you know, almost the feeling of literally going to the ends of the ends of the earth to to yeah. help people. Yeah. And and maybe that answers this next question, Bahe. But um, you know, I said that some of the things he did that were well known, and I wanted you to talk about the things, some of the things he did that weren't well known. And are you prouder of those things? And and are there specifics? And I'm guessing the the library in South Africa probably wasn't well known around here or, or even on the east coast of the U.S. Are you prouder of the things he did behind the scenes that didn't get the attention? I think. Yes and no, because the, the basic answer is I'm proud that he was the same person behind the scenes yeah. that he was in the limelight. And so this sort of ties together to what you're saying. I, I, there was a tribute to him this morning in Armenia that we watched and somebody made uh, made the point that one of the ways he got to know what was going on at the New York Public Library was to sip bourbon in the basement with custodians to try to hear what was what was what they needed. Um, you know, at Brown, he built, had a building dedicated to a man who'd been uh, in the physical plant department for 45 years and named it after him because the guy never missed a day of work. Wow. Um, 
when I went uh, the day after he died, um, I went back to New York and uh, there's a coffee shop right by his apartment where my dad would go almost every day. And the, the, the guy, when he, when he was informed that my, that I was my father's son was almost weeping, you know, telling me that uh, my dad was like a father to him. He was from um, somewhere in the, in the Baltics and he'd known my dad, maybe just, just through the COVID time because he'd just taken over the store, but he was, he insisted on making me my dad's favorite breakfast. And, and uh, it was very sweet. And, but I, I tell you that because I feel like that is um, illustrative of the way my dad connected with people and how, how he made it a point to always, always treat people that way with dignity and, and interest. And I actually had a question about that, that it had to make you feel good to see the tributes to your father from some popular people, some famous people, some, you know, very well-known, well-respected people, but also just the, the average person, you know, the guy running the coffee shop that had to make you feel really good, you know, to, to see all that, didn't it? A hundred percent. And you're identifying it exactly right, David. I felt like that I've got on my desk, I've got to figure out how to start writing back to people, but, you know, really a few hundred letters and that's, that, that's just directly sent to me. And they run the spectrum of, you know, people that went to Stanford with him, who's, who wanted to tell me what a terrible driver he was to, <laughs> um, and in, in great humor, right. But to, um, you know, to people all over the world, leaders, leaders of, of Ivy league schools, you know, personal letters to us about him, um, I was just watching this tribute to him in Armenia. I think I was telling you, and there's George Clooney talking about how he, when he grows up, he wants to be like my dad. Wow. And it, it's easy to sort of, and have fun with pointing out the celebrity type things, but I can't tell you that it's, it's more meaningful at heart yeah. that to hear George Clooney say that than to hear the, uh, the, the fellow at the, at the coffee shop, Andy, saying that i mean so what a what a blessing it is to be uplifted by all these things i mean we understand that um this is not common and and uh i i i appreciate every aspect of it i i really do We're, we're really uplifted by it yeah um my my grandfather used to he he was i always thought that he was the second funniest man in the world because everybody knew that Red Skelton was the funniest. So my grandfather <laughs> had to be second funniest. And he used to tell the story about the guy who paid $1,000 to have his family tree uncovered and $10,000 to have it covered back up. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's great. great <laughs> it's great when we can be proud of our family's heritage. So how do you feel that you are carrying on your father's significance in the world? Well, that's pretty loaded uh, because when you use the term, my father's significance, to the world, that's, I almost have to not think about that because of his significance in the world. Right. I think, but one of the things my dad tried to impart to every, everybody, particularly his sons, perhaps, but also um, students, the uh, audiences he spoke with is that it's up to us to create our own 
impact on the world. And, and you can choose whether you're going to be a, a period, a paragraph, a sentence, a page, a chapter. And I think that breathes life into that, that sense of your own life where you can, you can find your own way and, and just try to, um, try to have your principles and, and, uh, and understand how, how you want to be as a person. Um, I do think we came away with, from our upbringing and with my influence from my father, with the notion that I'm a person first, regardless of whatever I, I do. And I think that that's important. I do think that, um, in our, in our work in any jobs, people sometimes do lose sight of that. I'm not sure. I don't lose sight of that sometimes where you feel, um, some, you know, fiendish calling to get, get certain things done, right? Oh, I got to get this done no matter what. And, and I just think it's important to remember we're still people first and part of, part of the, the world as, as we know better than ever right now with uh, uh, the impact and implications of, of a global pandemic. Sure. It, it really Vahe, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, whatever you're doing, you know, you'd be the best street sweeper, the best garbage collector, the best coffee shop manager, the best sports columnist, the best whatever your role is, whatever you've chosen to pursue, and it could change, but whatever you're doing, do it to the best of your ability. And that, and seems like maybe that's what he passed along the most because he was a, he was an educator. He was an academician. He was, you know, he's a philanthropist. He was doing all these things and he did each one of those to the best of his ability. So his impact may have, may have been broader in some people's eyes, but he passed along to you, do the best, you do your best at whatever you're doing. I, I do think that's true. And I do think, um, look, I, I'm sure I fail all the time at, at a lot of things, but I don't think I ever fail because I'm not trying my hardest. Um, I do feel like whether it was, you know, in sports, uh, as a friend, as, as a husband, as a brother, as a son, as a journalist, I, I, I do feel like I have an inner voice that says, you, you, you better be doing your best. And, and it's, you know, I, I think it sustains me. Uh, I think sometimes it stresses me out. <laughs> but I do think I, I, I can say that, 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 that uh, I feel urged on uh, from the beginning by them. And, and even now I feel I've got a little shrine to them both here on my desk with a, a letter from my dad and photos of my mom and, and a, a few other things. It just stares at me every day yeah. uh, in a good way. I mean, I feel touched by them all the time. And I think, I think that's all they ever would have asked of us. Yeah. I, I lost my dad very suddenly in 2005. He died of a heart attack. And I was fortunate that I spent time with him even that day. Uh, and so I got to say things like that to him very often. Were you able to tell your father often how much you loved and admired him? Very fortunate to feel that way. Um, you know, we lost my mom in 2018. And not that we weren't in good communication before then, but, but it, that made it more intimate, more intense. And so we, we typically talked uh, several times a week. Um, what, 
one thing that was kind of interesting in the fight, you know, so because of the pandemic, though, we, we only saw him once in the last 18 months of his life, which was really would have felt terrible if we didn't keep up better by Zooms and stuff. And it, we found out later, I thought he had mastered Zoom, but it turned out his, his uh, office staff would be clicking it on for him with us when, <laughs> when we, <laughs> like from afar. Yeah. But but a, a really sweet thing happened in the last couple of months. In fact, it's one of the things I'm looking at right now on my desk. When I, t- I turned 60 in January and he decided he was going to roll up his sleeves and, and write me the letter of his lifetime just to, I don't know, just to tell me he was proud of me. And so he, he did, but the letter got lost in the mail. And he called me every single day for three weeks. Did it arrive today? Did it arrive today? I just kept saying, Papa, no, it, it hasn't, but I, I, I know it's going to show up. And on three weeks in, it showed up back at his apartment because he had put the wrong area code on it. Um, I'm sorry, wrong zip code on it. And so now he's, you know, he's, he, he got it back and got a new chance at it. And, you know, he might as well put it in bubble wrap and, and you know, inside armor and, and registered it with five different places. And it got here and it was it was fantastic. Yeah. And I, I do typically write him notes every so often, but and certainly we talk a lot, but I, I really felt compelled to write him a, a substantial letter of gratitude. Um, and that was probably mid-March or so. And, uh, you know, he read, read some of it back to me when I wrote him. And I, I did think, you know, in some ways I felt cheated that he died suddenly. Um, but I also can't say I felt cheated that he didn't know I, I loved him and that, uh, that I don't think there was anything left unsaid. Yeah. And as you know, from the feeling you had, I've understood this for some years. Uh, I had a, a a friend, Brian Burwell. I don't know if you ever knew Brian. Yeah, I knew Brian. I worked at Newsday with him. Yeah, well, there you go. Brian, great guy. And and when I got word he was sick, I think it was 2014 during the World Series. Um, uh, as soon as the World Series ended, I drove over to St. Louis and spent a day with him. And so when Brian died a few weeks later, I, I, it hurt, but I was – in a different place with it um, because I felt like I'd, I'd had a chance to tell him what he meant to me. And I, that and this lesson of my father's, and I, I think you've had this in your mind too. It makes me always want to talk about these things to urge people to make sure that nothing is left unsaid. You know, if, if you love somebody, if you're close to people, tell them why, tell them now. Yeah. Um, doesn't cost you anything. And, uh, uh, I think that it it's really meaningful. Yeah. I, I, you know, you brought up something that, that made me think something, my brother and I, I've got one, just one brother. M- my dad and I were in, in Los Angeles doing research on a book I, I wrote for on UCLA basketball. Excuse me. And my cousin worked for universal studios and we got there on a Wednesday. I think we're going to be there for a couple of weeks. And she said on Friday night, there's a, uh, employee only screening of a new mo- movie coming out. And I think you guys would like it. It's a sports movie. So if you want to come to the family screening, you know, you're welcome to, well, we went and saw field of dreams and that was, you know, for the, for the rest of my dad's life, that was his favorite movie. And my brother and I kept talking about one of these days we need to drive up to Dyersville, Iowa. And we never had time. We never could find the time, work things, family things. 
Finally, for Father's Day in 2004, we, we got together and we said, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to wait until August when the corn is high so we can walk through the corn. But we're going to go up there. We told him, you know, two months from now, we're taking you to Dyersville. And we played baseball on that field. And we actually reenacted the scene um, where the kid falls off the, the back of the, you know, and I've got a nephew who at the time was like, 13. So he pretended to fall off the back of the bleachers. And my, my dad's, I mean, we did all this. And the, the other people that were there were like cheering us as we were doing this. That was in August of 2004. And he died of a heart attack in January of 2005. Wow. And wow. I've got a picture, you know, because of the screen, you can't see it, but it's right behind me here of my, my son and me and my brother and his two sons and my dad standing on that field. And I see that every single day. And I remember, you know, I, he died late on a Sunday night and it was probably three in the morning when we got home. And I remember laying in bed with my wife saying, I am really glad we made the time to take my dad to the field of dreams. And I talked to my brother the next day and he said, Jill and I were laying in bed last night. And I said, I'm really glad we made the time to take dad <laughs> to the field of dreams. So it's, you know, you, yeah, do it. If you're planning on something, just do it. There's there's plenty yeah. of excuses not to, but there's one reason to do it to tell somebody you love them. So um, that that's an aside. We weren't. I wasn't planning on that one, but you said something that that triggered that. And I think I love that story. I'm glad <laughs> glad you glad you went off script. Okay, uh, if your father was joining this podcast today, two questions: What would you say to him, and what would he say to you? A couple of years ago, I had a chance, and this was the only time we've done this. He came to Kansas City to speak at the Kansas City Public Library, and uh, Crosby Kemper did a Q&A with him, and he pulled me up on the stage uh, for a bit of it, and that's the closest I can come to simulating this feeling. Um, I, I would just tell him a, a lot of what I told him, honestly, uh, at the side of his casket the day before he was buried, um, that nobody had it better than me to be his son. And uh, I wish I'd been um, a perfect son that I'm not, um, but that he lives inside of me and, uh, and he always will. And then uh, some of the humorous things that we would tease him about, you know, things like, like, you know, he retained his accent all his life. I mean, he was here in the fifties and he sounded like he just arrived. Um, <laughs> And he wore he wore a sports coat every day of his life, literally even to the hospital uh, before he died. Um, just things I, I, we enjoyed some of his personal quirks. Yeah, uh, it, maybe not. Maybe you wouldn't even call it quirks, right? They're just personal touches. Yeah. So I, I think that, and I I do believe that um that he would think it uh, just as important as when he wrote that letter to me. I think he would feel like he he needed to make sure I that he. I knew he was proud of me. Um, I think I think he understood that uh, being, you know, he he would joke that, you know, as the oldest of three boys, um, I was sort of the experimental one, and that, <laughs> that you know they 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 learned how to parent uh, at my expense. He would say that, and that's not really true. But but I think that he always understood I was uh, sensitive and that it would matter a lot to me to understand how he felt. So 
Yeah, I think I think he would feel the need to get that across as he would to my other two brothers. Yeah, that, that those are great. Those are great answers to that question. Um, and you talked about your dad's sense of humor. My dad had a had a great sense of humor as well. Growing up, he would say to my brother and me, "You guys are part royalty." You know, and we'd start, "Oh, really? What what's this about?" He goes, "Well, you go back several generations." King George IV of England was an uncle. Now, we're not directly in line, but we have enough royal blood that if, it, you know, if enough people die, we could legally be, uh, be the king of England. And then after we got really puffed up, he'd say, now, keep in mind, you may be related to him, but you're only half what I am. <laughs> so he worked, he worked for TWA so we could fly free. And so the summer after my soft, or freshman year of college, we went to England. And we, we, to, I mean, we went to Stratford on Avon, we went to, you know, all different tourist places and some, behind, you know, I mean, I say I went to, I went to Oxford. That was just, it was on a Sunday afternoon when the campus was closed, but I went to Oxford. Um, <laughs> an Oxford man. Yeah, I'm an Oxford man. Um, but one of the days we were touring Windsor Castle, which is the only castle open to the public, and they have a gift shop. Well, even though I'm younger, I'm, I was always the spokesman for my brother and me. And so we find this book on British monarchs. Hey, let's see what Uncle George was like. And it starts out, King George IV did more harm to the British monarch than any other monarch in Britain's history. And it went downhill from there. And it, the, last, the, the last line said his title of first gentleman was because of his lavish apparel rather than his manners, which were deplorable. So, of course, we bought the book. And it was time to meet up with my folks. And I said, hey, dad, we bought, we've bought a book on British monarchs. It's all, there's a lot of stuff in here about Uncle George. He goes, oh, really? Let me read that. So I opened the page to him and he's like, oh, 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 this is not good. And I said, well, there is some good news. He goes, I could use some good news. I said, we may be related to that guy, but we're only half what you are. <laughs> and nobody laughed harder than he did. You know, we called him when, he, when he'd act up. You know, and he, we, you know, family gatherings or something, you know, he'd belch during the, during the meal and my mom would get upset. We'd say, nice one, George. <laughs> his, name was, his name was Ray, by the way. <laughs> so, you know, we, getting a sense of humor from our, from our dads. And there's so much. I, we could talk for hours about what we've in, inherited uh, from our dads. But I want to I wrap up with this. I do this with, with everybody that I interview, but I, specifically today. I want you to talk about your extended family. You know, obviously your wife, Cindy, do you have, I don't know if, do you have kids? We don't have children. Okay. No. So it's, it's your wife and Cindy and then your brothers, what, what, what they're doing and uh, what they mean to you. Yeah. Well, my brothers are, are wonderful and that's been very important. Um, and, and, you know, even crucial in these last couple months that we, we uh, are so close. Um, my brother, Rafi, uh, is now working for the UN and and has been with the State Department and counterterrorism has been a big part of his work. Uh, my brother Dare now works for uh, MSNBC online, and uh, it, it's it's you know, having having a couple of us in the in the in the business is sort of a a, a funny thing, but but kind of a neat thing. And yeah. his wife. Maggie, uh, Maggie Haberman is her name, works for the New York Times and has, has uh, covered a lot of uh, political intrigue over the last few years. Um, and uh, my wife, Cindy, has been in journalism for a long time. But when the star stopped producing Spaces magazine a few years ago, um, 
that, that they eliminated the job. And so she's back in school for uh, interior design in her mid fifties and uh, bit off more than she could chew last semester, taking 18 hours, but she's, oh, wow. she's do she's, she's through that. And uh, so, we're, you know, yeah, we, and we'll all get together again here pretty soon in, 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 in mid June. Um, and I think I forgot the rest of your question. Yeah. I was just talking about your family. So I think, you, yeah, yeah. I think you're answering. We I'm all, guessing we, when you we, get back together, you'll tell stories, won't you? Absolutely. We will. And we, we keep doing that, whether, you know, we come across things now, we just text each other with, uh, either points of, uh, emotion or humor, um, or somewhere in between. Um, we, we, the, the stories are, pretty everlasting and uh, pretty plentiful. So we, we, we've been dipping in that uh, quite a lot. Yeah, for sure. All right. Last question for you. And you can answer this however you want. You can, you know, interpret, even interpret the question, however you want. What's your legacy? When I, when I read that you might ask me that uh, I remember thinking um, I was thinking about my father's legacy uh, <laughs> And, and legacy is a funny word to, uh, I think, to anybody living, right? And especially anybody just uh, doing doing what you do. Um, but I do think that uh, if I want to be known for anything in particular, I, I, I certainly hope it would be for trying to treat people well and um, for trying to be empathetic and caring about the broader world. Um, certainly, I want to be known for being my parent's son. And uh, my wife's husband and my brother's brother. So I, I think that's that's the best way I can put it. Um, yeah, I don't I don't I don't know how uh, fancifully to further answer that. Uh, that's excuse me. That's perfect. Well, but hey, it's it's always good to catch up with you. But in, in this setting, this has been a lot of fun. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. But I've really enjoyed getting to know you better. Uh, hearing more about your dad, um, my condolences, but I'm, you know, I, I, I think I can honestly say this as, as the son of somebody I'm very proud of, we share that uh, in common. So thank you for joining me. Absolutely. It's very uh, therapeutic to get to talk about this. And also we don't really, you know, the way it works in our jobs when we see each other, it's we're, we've got one eye on the ball game. Yeah. And so it's or one it's, eye on Zoom. <laughs> or one eye on Zoom. So it's it's hard to get this kind of time. So it's it's uh it's it's great to get to know you deeper this way, David. All right. Well, thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Sports Connections with David Smale. Make sure to subscribe, follow, and rate the show from your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more about David Smale and his work by visiting davidsmalebooks.com. Don't forget to join us weekly for new episodes. Until next time.